You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. Simple sermon this weekend. How many of you are ready for a simple sermon? Y'all are done with my complicated sermons. That's where you're supposed to say, no, we love all your sermons. <laughs> no, don't say that. All right, um, that's good to know. But this is a very simple sermon uh, tonight. Uh, everybody should be able to really grasp this one. It's simply called Our Great God and Savior. It comes out of our gospel reading of the week that we get from the Revised Common Lectionary. I have, about the half the time when I preach, I like to pull from the gospel reading of the week. Uh, when we're not covering other topics or other other passages or or whatever, um, I like the rhythm of the Revised Common Lectionary for one one reason among many uh, is that it's it's a global kind of rhythm that thousands and thousands and thousands of churches are joined on. So at the same time as we're reading and praying through and meditating on uh, Matthew 22 this week. There are millions, millions of Christians all around the world, every tribe, nation, tongue, that are also uh, meditating and thinking about and praying through that very same passage. So uh, we're going to break our, uh, take our gospel reading, we're going to break it in half, and we're going to focus on one half of the gospel reading this week. It's in Matthew 22. We're going to look at it in just a moment, but i got to set the stage just so you'll know the context here. Jesus now is in Jerusalem. It's during his final week, uh, Passover week. Uh, in just a few days, he's going to be crucified. So this is like everything's coming to a head now. Uh, he's the most famous man in Israel. A uh, vast majority of the people there have heard about this man, and they've come to believe that he is uh, God's Messiah, that God has raised up for God's people. And, um, and also the, the, the leadership, uh, the Jewish leadership of the first century, by which I would refer, I would mean like Sadducees, the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, and also the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they're not the ones in political power, but they have a lot of uh, moral authority amongst the people. These are the, the religious leaders of Israel at this time, and they are deeply, generally, they are deeply suspicious of this man, with a few exceptions. Uh, they believe this man is going to get them in trouble with Rome. And they're finding, they're trying to find a way to get rid of him because the crowd is behind him and the temple leadership, especially they are concerned that if Jesus either purposefully or inadvertently causes a revolt during Passover in Jerusalem, the Romans are going to squash them and they're going to lose their power. So they're trying to find a way to trip him up. We actually see in this final week of Jesus's life there in Jerusalem before his crucifixion and resurrection, he spends much of his time in the temple quarters teaching and dialoguing. There's a, I want you to imagine there's hundreds and hundreds of people around him, but among the crowd are some of the representatives of the powers that be, and they're trying to find a way to trip him up. So you'll see, for example, the passage we looked at last week where the Pharisees have their turn, and they're like, hey, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And they're thinking, okay, no matter what he says, he's going to get in trouble. Uh, and we saw how brilliantly his response was. But it really ties into what we're going to talk about here. As, as these different groups are trying to ask him questions and put him in a corner, 
Now in this passage, Jesus turns the table and he comes out with a question of his own. He kind of puts them on the defense and he's on the offense. So let's look at his question and then we'll pause and pray. But I want you to look at what he gives them to ponder here in Matthew 22, verses 41 through 45. That's where we're going to focus here. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them this question. What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said, to, he said to them, how is it then that David, by the Spirit, calls him Lord? Saying, and here Jesus is going to quote from Psalm 110. This is one of David's psalms written a thousand years earlier. David writes, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And then Jesus says, he follows up with this question. If David thus calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Let's pray. One more time, Lord, we come before you. We humble ourselves now before your Holy Spirit who has breathed upon the message of this text. And now, God, we need your Spirit now to enlighten us. We welcome your work in this moment that we would not just analyze this text with our intellect, but we would engage with our entire self. We humbly submit before you in this moment together as an act of worship, and we invite you to speak to the very core of our being whatever you might want to say. May your agenda be established in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so, a little bit of historical context. In first century Israel, specifically the first half of the first century. Many people were disillusioned. Many people were living in national shame. They were losing faith. They had been oppressed and ruled over by pagan powers for 800 years. I mean, think about it. You're, you're God's people. The one true God, the living God, the God of the entire earth, the very creator and sustainer of everything. And you want to see yourself as God's people through whom God's going to move and work. And yet for 800 years, you've been ruled over by pagan empires. You're, you don't even, you're not even a sovereign nation. You're serving and paying taxes to a guy who worships pagan gods. 800 years earlier, 722 B.C., the Assyrian Empire comes and completely decimates the northern kingdom of Israel, leaving only the southern kingdom of Judah with the capital of Jerusalem. But then, 140 years later, 586 B.C., the Babylonian Empire conquers the Assyrians and they invade Jerusalem, destroy it, destroy the temple, um, and deport its wealthiest, powerful inhabitants to Babylon. And now the people who remain in Judah are living under Babylon's authority. And then eventually that changes hands. Now it's the Persian Empire who's running things. And then that changes hands. Now it's the Greeks. And then after that, the Seleucid Empire. And then after that, other than a brief respite following the Maccabean Revolt, now the Romans are in charge. The worst of all. So like, what's going on? And yet... For hundreds of years, Israel's prophets 
have been catching glimpses by God's Spirit. They've been catching glimpses of this coming age when God's going to set it right. And God's going to raise up this Messiah figure, this mysterious human being of some sort who's going to be another Moses or a new David. And God's going to use this anointed one, this Messiah, who's going to come from David's line and uniquely, God, through this Messiah, is going to set things right. And through this Messiah, God Himself somehow will rule not just over Israel, but all over the entire world and usher in an eternal reign of peace and righteousness. And God's people will live in that fulfilled kingdom. And so many of the Jewish people, people like, for example, Simeon, who we read about in in early Luke and Anna, they're longing for this. They're looking forward to the coming of this Messiah. And they're trying to conceptualize what will this Messiah be like. And there were a variety of ways that people thought about and imagined the Messiah. But one thing they all agreed on is that whoever this Messiah is, he's going to come from David's lineage. He's going to come from the royal lineage of David. That's why they called him the son of David. That was a messianic term. Son of David. Son of, in the Bible, by the way, anytime you read son of, it doesn't always mean direct biological son of. Oftentimes it means descendant of. And that's what's meant by son of David. The Messiah is the son of David. But this is very important. Watch this. And this is, this is something a lot of people don't know, but it's actually extremely important for our passage. When the Jewish people visualized and imagined the identity of the Messiah, it never entered their mind. Listen, it never entered their mind that Messiah would be anything more than just an ordinary human being. In other words, they never imagined that the Messiah would actually be the embodiment of Yahweh on earth. They never it, they just never thought about that. It, they didn't have categories for that. And their framework, God is God. Human beings are human. God belongs in the heavens. Human beings live on earth and never the two shall mix. So the idea of God becoming a human being, this was not in their theological framework. And so notice what Jesus does here. He throws out this question to mess with their minds, to go to work on them. And he says, hey, but let me ask you guys, um, what do you think about Messiah? Whose son is he? And they say, well, he's the son of David, which is correct. He's, Messiah is going to be a descendant of David. But Jesus says, um, okay, but if he's only, if he's merely just a son of David, then why is it that in Psalm 110, David refers to him as Lord? He calls him Lord, which is the word Adonai. It's, it's one of the main terms that the first century Jews used to refer to God. So if Messiah is just a descendant of David, then why does David call him Adonai? And as Jesus so often does, he doesn't answer the question. He just throws it out and he lets it mess with their minds. It would actually be more accurate to just say Jesus is planting seeds like the parable of the sower. He's throwing out seeds. Let's see where it finds good ground. And eventually these seeds will give birth to the full flowering of this revelation. It's the most shocking, most important revelation of all time that God's Messiah is not just a human being. 
But somehow or another, God's Messiah is actually going to be the embodiment of God himself in human flesh. And that's what I want to focus on with you. This is going to be a very simple sermon, as I've mentioned. But this is such a fundamental truth that we want to and need to meditate on tonight. We live in an age in which there is a wide plurality of views about Jesus and who Jesus was. There are many people who will just simply leave it at, well, he was a great prophet. He was a good, wise teacher. Or Jesus was a spiritual guru. He was an ascended master like Buddha. Jesus was a a moral example to follow. Or as some religious cults would tell you, Jesus was some kind of archangel of some sort. Tonight, we're going to be looking at a lot of Scripture, way more than I I would normally look at in a a sermon. A lot of Scripture. Because what I want to do is I want to show you the univocal witness of the entire New Testament and the earliest Christians, going back to the very formation and origin of Christianity, I want to show you that from the very beginning, what these people tell us without exception is that Jesus is not only God's Son, but He is God Himself in human flesh. He is not just Messiah, but He is the Word made flesh. Amen? So, uh, we're going to divide it into three categories because there are basically three um, types, three um, What's the word I want to use? Three categories of teaching in the New Testament that speak to Jesus' divinity. And so I want us to look at this this in three sections. First of all, number one, you find throughout the New Testament that Jesus is explicitly referred to as God. And we're going to give you a sampling of verses here. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, Matthew quotes from the prophet Isaiah, and applies it to Jesus' birth. And he says, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Jesus comes into the world, he is God with us, not something less than that. The presence of God Almighty in a unique way is found in the person of Jesus Christ. This is why in John 1, when John opens his gospel, he does it this way. In the beginning, which is kind of an ironic plagiarism of Genesis 1.1. But John's doing it on, impur- he's doing it on purpose because he wants you to know this is the story of new creation. In the beginning was the word. It's the Greek word logos. I don't have time to unpack that. Uh, but it's speaking about Jesus. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then 13 verses later, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So from John's perspective, Jesus is not kind of, sort of God, semi-God, quasi-God, partially God. No, Jesus is God and always has been from the very beginning, the second person of the Trinity. Which is why at the end of John, uh, when, when Thomas, one of his disciples, hears the news about Jesus being resurrected at first, you know, Thomas doesn't believe it. He doubts. But then he has his own encounter with the resurrected Christ and he puts his hands in the nail prints in Jesus' palms. And look how, look how Thomas reacts here in, in chapter 20, verse 28. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't go, uh, okay, dude, you're getting a little carried away here. I'm just an angel. 
or I'm just a spiritual guru. I'm just an ascended master. Pipe down a little bit. No, he actually affirms, affirms Thomas. In Romans 9, Paul refers to Jesus as, quote, God over all, blessed forever. It's really important that we remember the folks who are writing these things down. These are first century monotheistic Jews. They only believe and worship one God. They're not polytheistic, which means believing in a lot of gods. They believe in only one God. And, and at the foundation of their faith is this confession that God is God. The Lord our God is one, the, the Hebrew Shema. God is God. Humans are humans, and they don't mix, which really raises the question, how did these people ever come to believe that Jesus of Nazareth, the actual historical person, was in fact God in human form? But here, Paul, who was a monotheistic first century Jew, well-educated man, he refers to Jesus as God over all, blessed forever. And then in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, he refers to, quote, the coming of our great God and Savior. For Paul, uh, Jesus is not just simply Savior. He's our great God and Savior. So that's number one. Jesus is consistently referred to as God. That's just a sampling of verses. Secondly, number two, the second category is that Jesus consistently speaks as God. I'm going to show you this from the entire New Testament, starting with the very end in Revelation 22, last chapter of the Bible, actually, Revelation 22, verses 12 and 13. Jesus says, look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. That's interesting. But notice here, Jesus presents himself as the judge of all humanity. One thing that every first century Jew understood is that there's only one judge of humanity, and that's the creator of humanity. And yet Jesus applies that to himself. He's the judge of humanity. He's not one of the human beings who's going to be judged. And then he continues in verse 13, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This is an explicit claim to divinity. When Jesus says that, he's making a claim to being God in the flesh. Because throughout the Bible, there's only one being who says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and that is the Lord God Almighty. So, for example, we have this in uh, Isaiah 14. Uh, it says, this is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and the last. Apart from me, there is no God. At this, at this point in history, uh, Israel was being seduced into worshiping idols and false gods and different things in nature and things like that. And so here God is reminding them, look, there's only one of me. And there's, there's no one besides me. I'm the first and the last. Don't worship. For your own benefit, don't worship anything outside of me. And when he says I'm the first and the last, it's a way of saying that he never began to exist and he never ceases to exist. You go back as far in the past as you want, God is there. You can go as far as to the future as you want, God is there. He is the one eternal constant, the Alpha and the Omega. And yet here Jesus, the son of David, says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega because he is the Almighty now coming down in human form. He continues in verse 16 of Revelation 22. Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I just want you to notice Jesus sends the angels. He's not one of the angels. He actually has authority over the angels because he created the angels. Jesus ain't no angel. Amen? 
And then he says, continuing in verse 16, I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. He's making the same point that he makes in our original text in Matthew 22. Yes, Jesus is the offspring of David as a full human being. He is the son of David. And yet, he's the root of David because David came from him. He's the creator of David. He's the Lord of David. So Jesus is fully God, fully man. He's the root and the offspring of David. Listen to this in John 14. You know, Philip, one of his disciples at one point, Philip's like, Jesus, you're constantly talking about the Father, the Father this, the Father that. You're always talking about the Father. Why don't you just show us the Father? And Jesus says, Philip, you've been with me this whole time and you don't know me? He says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Think about the implications of that. What would you think of Ryan Post? If at the end of this sermon, somebody comes up to me and says, uh, Ryan, you know, I listen to you every weekend. I listen to your complicated sermons every weekend. And you're always talking about God every week. It's God this, it's God that. Ryan, why don't you just show us God? What would you think of me if, if I said, well, you've been coming to this church how long? And you still don't know me by now? If you've seen me, you've seen God. That's crazy. That's crazy talk. And yet he's consistently making these kinds of claims. In John 5, verse 23, look at what Jesus says, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. That's interesting. He's demanding the same kind of honor that God the Father gets. It would be me like saying to you, you know what, it's time that you guys start showing me a little bit of respect around here. You, you ought to show me as much honor as you show um, God. A little R-E-S-P-E-C-T. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Is that a little too much to ask? But that's crazy. You don't honor a human being the same way you would honor God. God's in a category all into himself. And yet Jesus talks this way. He says things like in John 8, verse 58, he says, Before Abraham was, I am. Now, he's not using bad grammar here. This is a reference to an event recorded in Exodus 3 where God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush and he says, I am that I am. That's my name. And so when Jesus says this before Abraham was, I am, what he's saying is, remember that story in Exodus 3, God speaking to Moses in the burning bush? That was me. And you know what the crowd does? They start picking up stones because they know what he's saying. The penalty for blasphemy was death. Jesus says things like this in Matthew 11, verse 27. No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Think about that. No one knows the Father except the Son and whoever the Son wants to reveal Him. What would you think of me if I were to say, I got a revelation for you folks tonight. I don't mean to brag or anything, but nobody actually knows God except me. Nobody's ever actually known God but me and whoever I choose to reveal Him. You ought to, if I said something like that, you ought to run as fast as you can in the opposite direction. Matthew 5, verse 11, Jesus says, Blessed are you when you are persecuted for my sake. See, the rabbis were always telling people, Blessed are you when you're persecuted for Israel's sake. Or blessed are you when you're persecuted for Yahweh's sake. But nobody went around saying, Blessed are you when you're persecuted for my sake. Who does this guy think he is? God or something? John 14, Jesus tells his disciples to pray in my name. 
again, just hear the audacity of that. What would you think of me if I said, I I want you all for the next week, I want you to start praying in my name. I want you to, when you have dinner tonight, say, Lord, bless this food in Ryan's name. Amen. Lord, heal my cat in the name of Ryan Post. Amen. I can tell you one thing, your cat's probably going to get worse. And again, you ought to run completely in the opposite direction as fast as you can. But to be praying in the name and the authority of a mere human being, that's just not done, especially not in first century Judaism. And yet, this is exactly what Jesus commands of his disciples. In Matthew 25, this one won't be on the screen. I, didn't, I couldn't get it on there. But Matthew 25, verse 1, Jesus refers to himself implicitly as the bridegroom. The bridegroom. Instantly, every good devout Jew would make connections to their prophets because more than once, their God, Yahweh, is spoken of in terms of being the bridegroom and Israel is his bride. Everybody knows the bridegroom is God. And Jesus shows up and announces, I'm the bridegroom. It's a clear, implicit reference to his divinity. In John 6, he says things like, I have come down from heaven. That's weird. I'm just showing you a sampling. This is all sorts of weird stuff, not normal stuff, not okay stuff. This isn't like spiritual guru stuff. This is not the kind of thing that a good, wise teacher says to people. So your choice really is is one of two things. Either this man is absolutely nuts and crazy, or he's telling the truth. And if it's true, we're talking about Yahweh himself who loved us so much he became a human being. So number one, Jesus is referred to as God. Secondly, Jesus consistently speaks as God. And then finally, number three, Jesus is worshipped as God. This is huge. In Matthew 28 and a number of other places, It says this, they came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Jesus is worshipped. As I mentioned earlier, the most fundamental belief in Jewish faith is that only God is deserving of our worship. It's forbidden for human beings to be worshipped. So you'll see, for example, in Acts 10, when there's a guy named Cornelius, he has a pagan background, but somehow or another as a seeker, he he has this dream, he receives a dream from God, and then later on Peter comes, just to make a long story short, and this guy Cornelius, he doesn't know what to do, he's kind of wrestling with his own background and and discovering, and, and he's just trying to figure it all out, and he ends up bowing down and trying to worship Peter, and Peter, being a good, devout Jew, he says, man, knock that off. Same thing happens to Paul and Silas uh, in Acts. Paul and Silas, are, they're out in this pagan region and they're doing some miracles. And these pagan people, you know, they don't know any better. They start associating Paul and Silas with divine, God-like figures. So they start bowing down and trying to worship Paul and Silas. And they're like, don't do that. Only God is deserving of our worship. We see that with angels throughout the Scriptures and, and Revelation. John, John has this unbelievable visionary experience and he gets so caught up and overwhelmed that this angel who appears to him, inexplicably, John bows down and and tries to begin to worship this angel and the angel says, no, 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 don't do that. I'm just a worshiper like you. And he points him to Jesus. So all throughout the scriptural record, when it comes to the worship of any other being but God, when it comes to godly people, they always reject it. Angels reject it. But when it comes to Jesus, not only does he not stop it, 
he actually solicits it. Because he's not just a godly human being, and he's not just a high-ranking angel. Jesus is the Lord God Almighty here on earth. And if you don't believe the gospel writings, watch this, you have to ask yourself, this is very important, you have to ask yourself, what must Jesus have been like to convince these people, masses of devout monotheistic Jews, against their most fundamental religious beliefs, what would convince them that this man is the very presence of God on earth and he is worthy of our worship? When their most fundamental religious beliefs tell them that is impossible. Now you see, if Jesus was anything like the Gospels present him as a man who's doing profound miracles and making divine claims and being resurrected from the dead, then yeah, now you can see, now you can begin to understand what would convince these folks that this man is God in the flesh. But if it was anything other than that, anything less than that, then you tell me what convinced these people. And good luck with that. The historical evidence, as well as the testimony of Scripture, leads us to one of two conclusions. Either this man is absolutely crazy, off his rocker, insane, or he's telling the truth. And he is the Lord of Lords, and the King of Kings, and the God of all gods. And if he is that, then there are a few things that follow, and I'm going to close with this. A couple things here. Number one, it means that God is this beautiful. If Jesus is the perfect embodiment of God on earth, the very image of God's invisible being, the very radiance of God's glory, and the exact representation of God's essence. I'm just giving you New Testament theology here. If this truly is Jesus, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, if you know me, you know the Father, then that means God truly is this beautiful. Now sometimes people ask this question today. They, they wonder, how can an intelligent person today continue to believe that God would become a human being on this planet. They, they might say, well, you know, it, 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 yeah, you can explain maybe why the, the ancient people who still believed that the earth was the center of the universe, you could, yeah, I can understand why they would feel like we're so important that God would become a human being. But now we know that the universe is like really, really, really old. And it's really, really, really big. I mean, with all of these billions and billions billions and gazillions of stars and planets and all that sort of thing. And here we are living on this tiny little microscopic piece of dust in an insignificant solar system in the small corner of a galaxy that's part of an entire galaxy cluster among many, many other galaxy clusters. People might say, well, you know, to think that God would become a human being, isn't that kind of arrogant of us to assume and believe that? But here's the thing. The universe and its size displays the greatness of God's power. What if God is just as loving as he is powerful? And you see, with love, you display the intensity of love not by how big something is, but by how small you're willing to get for the sake of the beloved. So for this God who created and sustains this universe that's so big we can't even wrap our minds around it and holds every molecule in existence in the palm of his hand, for that God to be born as a little baby in an animal's feeding trough in a remote corner of the world, it reveals a love that's unfathomable 
just like the size of the universe, it's incomprehensible, this love. It's all, it's, it's unsurpassable, unimprovable, eternally unwavering love that God would become a human being. The smallness shows and reveals the greatness. And to go even further, to add to that, that this little baby grows up to become an adult and goes to Calvary and dies on the cross so that he can make things right, make, make things right between humankind and God and make things right between one another so that it's possible for us to dwell in the very life of God. For God to go to that extreme and make himself that infinitesimally small on our behalf it reveals a love that we truly cannot even begin to comprehend. And it defies all normal, rational categories in our minds. So yeah, to believe that Jesus is fully God and fully human, I will grant that that's hard to believe. It's difficult to believe. It's really crazy when you think about it. But God is just crazy enough to do it. He's crazy in love. And so when we're looking at Jesus Christ, we're seeing the face of God. This is what God looks like. And then it says a second thing. God believes you are worth dying for. If Jesus was only a wise teacher, if he was only an enlightened spiritual guru alongside of every other spiritual guru, it wouldn't tell you anything about your worth. But if Jesus truly is God, in the flesh, first of all, he knows your worth. And knowing your worth, if he's willing to come to this planet and put himself on the cross and die for your sake, it tells you everything you need to know about how God estimates your worth. You are worth dying for. You have unsurpassable worth in God's eyes. How do we know that? Because he paid an unsurpassable price on your behalf. And that changes everything. That means if I, if I truly grasp that, not only in my mind, but if I, if I absorb that and allow that to penetrate my mind and get into my heart, what it does is it frees me from all of the bondage of the lies that I've inherited from the culture around me. It means, no, you're not what your dad said about you. You're no good. You're useless. You're worthless. You'll never amount to anything. You're not what your dad said. You're not what your mom said. You're not what your boyfriend or girlfriend did or whatever all of those years ago. You get broken from that. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. I know what God thinks, and he says it on the cross as loud as I can hear it. I have unsurpassable worth in the eyes of God. And when you know that, it actually not only changes the way we perceive ourselves, it changes the way we live towards one another because if it's true about me, it's true of every person on this planet. Every person I see here in Los Angeles, every person I see, I don't care what, what's in their life, what their life is like. Yeah, there's probably a lot of brokenness, just like there's some brokenness in me. But the most important thing about them is that they're made in the image of their creator and they're a person for whom Christ died. Therefore, I know they have unsurpassable worth. That's what God thinks. And my most fundamental job as a kingdom person is to agree with God's opinion and reflect that opinion in the way I think about them, the way I speak about them, and the way I treat them. And if this truly is who our God is, well, then he's worthy of our worship. He truly is. He's worthy of everything I can give him, not just my song. When I say worship, I'm not just talking about my song. I'm talking about the praise of my life. 
every moment of my day living into the obedience of the faith, living into allegiance of my King, my heavenly King, my crucified, risen, ascended Lord, who is making things right in the earth. I want to live a life of obedience and worship unto Him. And, and when I see Him for who He is, that, that's not drudgery, my friends. That's not burdensome. It's a joy. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.